It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Outward for the month of July. I'm Brandon Tinsley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. I'm calling in from Sydney, Australia, where I feel like I'm living queer history after having had a refreshing rosé at the Imperial Hotel, which is featured in the iconic gay Australian movie, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Good day, mate. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and y'all will have to tell me if I'm being too much this episode because I'm still buzzing with emotion after making the most of the night at the Carly Ray show last night. <laughs> uh, I'm so jealous. You just killed Brandon. <laughs> Brandon I'm, I'm actually dead. I'm dead. I'm seething here. <laughs> she was great. She was great. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I am just grateful to see the light of day this morning after a dream I had last night where I got the silhouettes of all the characters from The Lion King tattooed on my back. (laughs) What? (laughs) That has nothing to do with the theme of this episode. I'm just extremely traumatized and woke up ready to look into tattoo removal. Let's analyze that later. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So... Megan Rapino, Joan Crawford, Janet Jackson, Julia Stiles' character in 10 Things I Hate About You. On this month's episode, we're talking about gay icons, those figures who, for a variety of reasons, have a distinct resonance among their queer fans and admirers. We'll kick things off with a Vox Pop to hear from Slate folks about who their favorite gay icons are and why, and then dive into a discussion of what we mean when we talk about gay icons and how these meanings have changed over time. We'll then talk with Pretty Ricky of Pretty Boy Drag to get a sense of the place of gay icons within drag king communities. And of course, we'll close with our usual gay agenda. But first, let's start with our July prides and provocations. Brandon, from half a world away, are you proud (laughs) or provoked this month? I am feeling pride this month. Um, And I think it's better described as a sort of Pride hangover from the Pride show. Um, So I think, Christina, we talked a little bit about this. And I have been thinking a lot about a conversation that I had with um, an older friend of mine, much older, um, like in his late 60s, uh, who was in the audience at the show. And um, he was essentially just talking about how he was almost brought to tears, the way that we talked about, um, in particular, uh, AIDS activism, um, sort of in the 80s, but also through the present Um, And, you know, he sort of told me the story about how he moved to New York in 1981. And he talked about how there was like a 10 year period where he was just burying more and more of his friends weekly. And um, he talked about how he had sort of buried or covered uh, those uh, those thoughts and those wounds and those memories um, and how special it was for him to, you know, see different generations of young queer people uh, talking about this. 
And, you know, it, it, it made me sort of think about how important it is to have that sort of communication um, sort of across uh, generations, um, you know, if for no other reason than to, than to preserve history. And so, you know, the, the point of that show was talking about queer legacies. Uh, but for me, that sort of put it in action, especially he, you know, when we, when we met up, I was like, you know, I don't want you to think that this is a sort of teaching moment for, for you where, you know, an older gay person has to teach a younger gay person um, about stuff. And he was like, you know, like the older he gets, he was just like, I, I want to do this because I think it's important. And so, you know, I've, I've just thought a lot about uh, that conversation since, since our pride show. That's really cool. That was a really special show for me. Brian, are you proud or provoked this month? <sighs> I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I'm provoked. So I'm going to I'm going to take the hit for the group and discuss uh, <laughs> this Dale Peck piece that I'm sure many of our listeners saw um, blow up on the internet. It was in the New Republic and it was about why or it was about him, sort of in this writer, Del Peck, interrogating his own dislike for Pete Boot Edge Edge, um, which uh, a figure we've discussed on the show already <laughs> before. And, and you know, keeps having these sort of moments where uh, online queer people are sort of debating their relationship to him. So this piece is not worth, I, I don't think the piece was that great. Um, so I don't think it's that worth like sort of deconstructing it in detail. I think I'll just say that the reason it upset people Mainly it was because it speculated about his about Pete's Mayor Pete's sex life and then sort of worried over whether because he only came out, you know, ostensibly four years ago or so, that he is gonna have a gay adolescence like in the White House and be, I don't know, like partying and <laughs> like cooking Which up or something. Actually sounds great. Yeah. Well we're, that sounds mm, like that's a interesting. I like I love that. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I think um, part of the problem with this piece is that the tone is of a certain kind of 90s uh, criticism that this writer in particular is associated with. And so mm-hmm. people weren't connecting that or like loving that anymore. And that's fine. Um, but m- my main point in, in talking about this now is I feel like we've gotten to a point in the Mayor Pete discourse where it's clear that there are some queer people who love him and cannot hear a critique of him. And then there are some people who just don't see it and don't don't like him, don't connect to him, don't connect to his uh, presentation of gayness or his own relationship to gayness. And we're two different camps and it's OK and we don't have to convince each other and we can just like <laughs> let it chill like it, it. We don't need to keep going in circles like Christina wrote a great piece that we talked about on the show. There have been various moments of this. People were calling this piece, the the Dale Peck piece, like homophobic, which doesn't make any sense because he's gay. So like, whatever. It's like it's round and round in circles. And I think it's time to just like l- let Mayor Pete be whatever kind of gay he is until I- until such time that it matters that we, you know, sort this out in any real way. But there is no I don't think there's like a solution to it. Like, and I'm not going to hope you're, you're not suggesting that people stop like writing about him or no no but him. i but i think i i would what i guess i would say is like could maybe we maybe stop trying to convince each other mm-hmm. like I, if that makes sense like mm-hmm. i i am not going to like my feelings about him are established and i think it's clear that the supporters i'm not a supporter right and i think it's like clear that the supporters feelings are also very well established for whatever reasons they have and that's cool and like it's you know we've got like a year and a half of this left like <laughs> We can just like chill a little bit. Like it doesn't need to be such a big deal. I will say um, one thing about the piece that sort of, or or maybe um, 
how people sort of glossed over this thing. But for me, one of the things that was like most jarring was the whole Mary Pete uh, sort of moniker that he gave right. him just because it was this really bizarre sort of like, you know, he was th- thinking about like, okay, what's the equi- the gay equivalent of an Uncle Tom? Mm. Um, and it was this bizarre sort of endorsement of calling someone an Uncle Tom by like yeah. seeking out a similar sort of term that I thought was just like, is where you know, it's it's like, I don't, no black people who would, mm. you know, sort of toss that term around, at least in mixed company. <laughs> and yeah. so for like a white person to actively seek out in a sort of equivalent of that term to me was like, you know, it was a sort of weird look, but that was one of my takeaways from the piece. And you make a good point that, you know, having this piece in a publication like The New Republic yeah. versus in a queer publication reads very differently. I, and I think part of the intense reaction that people are having to this has to do with the fact that, you know, these are things that I've heard people say, you know, sure. in, in in queer places, queer circles, but thinking about straight people eavesdropping on those conversations Mm -hmm. like makes the hairs on my neck stand up a little bit Um, which isn't to say we shouldn't be having those conversations in public but um, it does feel like uh, extra jarring or people feel extra protective when it comes out in a mainstream publication like that yeah I think mixed company is a great a great point Brandon yeah I mean it it was that 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 part of it is was strange and a little bit weird, but it's like you said, Christina, it's not something that I haven't heard at right. dinner party, <laughs> you know, like n- not necessarily the thing you were saying, Brandon, but, but just the general, the general thrusts of, of this critique where I have, you know, heard and some of which I actually like, I don't want to say agree with the way he put them, but like there is, there are certain, I don't know. We're not, you know what? No, we're not going to do it. I'm not going to fall. <laughs> I'm not going to fall for it. I'm not going to get back into this cycle. Uh, whatever. Pete, Pete can be gay his own way and I'm done with it. Um, okay, so this month I am also provoked, but more in the sense of thought-provoking. So this is actually something that comes from my wife, who is a big basketball fan, played basketball. I and a lot of our friends have been obsessed with the U.S. women's national team, the soccer team, who just won the Women's World Cup, a.k.a. the World Cup, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, There are a bunch of players on the team who are queer. Um, At this point, there are, I believe, six gays or queer people um, out of 23 players. So that makes the team 26% gay. (laughs) Also, their coach, Jill Ellis, is gay. Um, And, you know, they've been all up in the media being super dykey. Megan Rapinoe was out there saying, like, it's scientifically impossible for a team to win the World Cup without gay players. Like, prove it, (laughs) you know, prove that that's possible. And, you know, they've been having a a well-deserved victory tour um, where it's almost like made me tear up sort of looking through pictures of Megan Rapinoe up there being her big-ass gay self, (laughs) being adored for being her big-ass gay self. However, I will say that the U.S. women's national basketball team has been one of the winningest teams in all of Olympic sports. They've been getting straight gold medals for years. The 2016 team had... Six out gay players out of 12. That's half gay. That's twice as gay as the U.S. women's national soccer team. And I do not recall three years ago a similar 
you know, gay uprising of support for the U.S. I mean, you know, Mm. people rooted for them and stuff, but they did not have this same kind of moment. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think it has something to do with race. The U.S. women's national team is mostly white. Almost all of the out gay players are white. They're very much, you know, within mainstream Western standards of beauty, which isn't to say that the gay players on the U.S. women's national basketball team are not incredibly beautiful because they are. I just want to name them. Diana Taurasi, Brittany Griner, Jewel Lloyd, Lacia Clarendon, Elena Deladonna, and of course, Sue Bird, the partner of Megan Rapinoe herself. Um, you know, they're a lot that, – that group is less white than the U.S. women's national team gay players. Um, it's also a different moment. You know, we were just focusing on the World Cup versus during the Olympics. You're kind of focusing on everything that's going on. Also, perhaps in the three years since then, the U.S., uh, you know, the general public has developed more of a comfort with appetite for dyke swagger, dyke brilliance. There's more opportunities to appreciate these people for their gayness. I don't know, maybe um, – basketball has been historically more homophobic. Someone can fact check me on that. That's just the impression I get. All of which is to say, I would really like to see the same kind of enthusiasm for our out gay basketball players as we have seen for the U.S. women's national team. I want us to really turn out for them um, during the Olympics next year. I'm excited to see. I'm excited to calculate the percentage of gays on that (laughs) team, too. And, you know, I I would just I'm excited to see or I would hope to see some of the enthusiasm that we've seen for the U.S. Women's National Team translate into support for the WNBA and the National Women's Soccer League. And that's what I'm going to say about that. My thoughts have been provoked. Mm. Plus one. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I support this this uh, justice, call for justice, for sure. Love a gay ponytail. Yeah. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, conditions apply. See website for details. So part of the beauty, at least to me, of gay icons as a concept is that these figures can be so specific and so personal. So, for instance, someone can be a gay icon to me, um, but maybe just another sequin-wearing, glitter-throwing straight woman to Brian and Christina. We'll talk about this later. Um, So, to paint a fuller picture of the cultural phenomenon, we asked some queer slate folks about who their gay icons are and why. Let's listen. For many years, uh, when I was really very young, I had a postcard of Catherine Hepburn in the movie Sylvia Scarlet. And in it, she's wearing this amazing suit and she has a fantastic, I think you could say a man's haircut. She's kind of passing. Um, and it. I just always looked upon that and thought, oh, that is aspirational. It's um, also, again, it was a kind of a signaling uh, when people would see it on my notice board in college or whatever. My gay icon that I want to talk about today is Kate Bush, the British singer, songwriter, all-around incredible, witchy person. Kate Bush, you feel through her because her songs are so weird and emotional and strange, and they are all coming from a very emotional place, but they're also entirely in character. And so you have both the element of you can feel through the music, but you can also aspire to her as an artist because she's just an incredible artist in every 
respect. And discovering her work was this like really watershed moment in my aesthetic development and um, my love of art and I would say Landon Sider is one of mine because not only is he a fierce, talented, and innovative drag king, but he is also a relentless advocate for drag kings in the greater community, um, a real visible force to be reckoned with in the drag world. And it's super interesting and exciting to see everything he does from um, performances to also um uh, articles he's written and competitions he's judging. It's been, it's always really interesting to see what he's up to. My queer icon is Lynn Breedlove, the singer of the band Tribe 8, who are no longer active. They were very popular in the 90s. They were a an early queer core punk rock band. Um, and at the time, they were singing about trans issues and doing really like, like waving dildos around on stage, singing about going into the wrong bathroom, things like that. And before it was really in the public news cycle and so prevalently seen. So talk about earlier trans visibility for uh, before the Internet was a thing. Um, that My is- queer icon is Leslie Feinberg, who is the author of the book Stone Butch Blues, um, which is about butch lesbian communities and deals with a lot of different topics like police violence, um, gender nonconformity, racism, gender presentation, and butch femme relationships. And I had never seen characters like that represented in books or movies or TV. And I related so strongly to some of the things that they were going through. And I feel like Leslie Feinberg just captured a world that I hadn't really seen represented and her activism and her writing were so deeply intertwined and really was like committed to making her writing be representative of these diverse issues and trans issues and queer issues. And I felt so just represented reading her work. So as we heard in that lovely queer iconographic collage, the phrase queer icon is what in undergrad I think we would call polyvalent. (laughs) 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 Throwback term. It really means different things to different people. So today we thought we'd explore that range of meanings by sharing examples from our own queer shrines and how our different icons got there. Um, I think I'll ask Brandon first. What, What icon did you bring to us? One I definitely wanted to bring up is uh, Janet Jackson. Mm. Yeah, so I picked it for a couple reasons. So I think the first one, I think it's important to, I I think when we talk about gay icons, or at least when uh, gay men often talk about gay icons, the people we tend to hold up in these places tend to be white. But I think it's also important to sort of underscore gay icons of color, Mm -hmm. uh, just to show the the breadth of these figures and in a way that also sort of serves as a corrective to what's often portrayed as as a white cultural phenomenon. But then I think... To me, what makes Janet Jackson, one of the things that makes her so interesting um, is that she sort of acquired gay iconicity. If you look around the internet and scan sort of meditations on Janet Jackson as a gay icon, the general consensus is that she didn't really get that distinction until uh, her 1997 album, The Velvet Rope, 
Um, mostly because on that album, she more explicitly sort of explores themes like same-sex relationships. She has the song Together Again, which, you know, topped the charts all over the world. Um, and what she uh, talks about as uh, having written as a sort of uh, love letter to friends of hers who she lost to AIDS. Um, and so for her, it was this very sort of deeply personal investigation into um, people's uh, different lived experiences um, in a way that I remember hearing like Together Again on the radio um, as a kid, like in my mom's car. And I think one time actually like asking her if we could stay in the car um, until the song was finished. (laughs) So sweet. sweet. And yeah, I don't know, like she's just somebody who has also uh, continued to sort of hold that status. And, you know, if I think if you want to contrast her with somebody today, as much as I, I love Taylor Swift's songs, her lyrics um, on the whole. But, you know, I think for sort of an easy sort of uh, uh, comparison, somebody who's, you know, in the conversation today, um, that's one of the things that people have, that queer people have uh, critiqued and criticized Taylor Swift for is the the way that she's try- essentially tried too hard. So you've brought up like a couple interesting things that I want to like, threads I want to pull out. Um, so one of them is you, you were talking about like why you sort of identify with Janet Jackson as a queer icon. And you were talking about sort of explicit references in her music to the community or to things the community has gone through, the queer community has gone through. And that's an interesting idea. Like, do the people or the figures that we identify with have to be sort of explicit allies or explicitly engaging with us to be our icons or don't they? Because I think a lot of earlier icons, people from earlier in the 20th century, weren't necessarily doing that, and yet were, like, you know, super important to queer people. So I wonder, the question, you know, is for, for sort of all of us, like, is how important is it that our icons, like, say, mention our names, <laughs> you know, like, in, in their work? I think in 2019, it's extremely important. Mm-hmm. I don't fault gay icons of previous generations for not doing that because I don't think it was as much a part of, you know, respectable mainstream conversation. And so, you know, I think people would maybe, if if at all, they would signal their affinity in co- coded ways. Mm-hmm. Today, I think it would be insane for a celebrity, music artist, whatever, to have a really significant queer fan base be lauded as a queer icon and not say anything like, I support you, people who are giving me money and Mm -hmm. elevating me as a tastemaker in this community. Brian, I feel like you have a different perspective on this, though. I think my my slightly grouchy perspective on this is that I have – I am someone who – made a point of like I think it's certainly not organic to me because I'm not like old enough to have identified this way I'm I'm you know 31 so I I, I identify I'm very much a child or a person of the same uh the current generation that we're like talking about but I did study the way I sort of made it made a, a study of myself of the way that gay men in particular used to relate to like the divas that uh, were important. So like the, the Darren Crawfords and the Judy Garlands and that mode of identification, which is coded and which is all about like the sort of. Um, you know, it's about camp, it's about aesthetics, it's about the the tragedies that, that those figures sort of endured either in their films uh, or in their personal lives. All of those modes of identification were, I think, important and 
I would argue like maybe a little bit richer. Like I am more attracted to that that kind of um, readerly like engagement with with pop figures um, than I am the kind of you know uh, Lady Gaga like born this way like you know let's let's lecture to us about about the connection if that makes sense. And actually, I can I can go ahead and share the the figure I brought um, as an example. And it's a it's actually a fictional one, but it's uh, anti mame, um, which is a a uh, <laughs> Daniel's Daniel's giving me high, high fives, uh, which is a <laughs> which is a character uh, that's been played by um, uh, Rosalind Russell and uh, Lucille Ball. Um, the Russell movie, the fifty eight nineteen fifty eight movie, is the correct one, um, and. This this figure is it was written actually by it was in a novel originally and it was written by a queer man, um, so there's that. But um, she is this aunt that every gay man I think wishes he could have had because she picks she takes this sort of very uh, clearly gay boy like out of his humdrum straight um, awful family life and into fabulous New York and around the world and um, she's eccentric and she dresses fabulously and just has this this wonderfully gorgeous life and um, that kind of like I identify more strongly with that figure as an icon than anyone who is like I support your right to get married like that like that just isn't interest as interesting to me as that sort of cultural connection if that makes sense is part of your preference for that kind of icon does it have to do with the your ability to project whatever you'd like onto them um, mm. versus you know somebody telling you here are the five things that I am you know in the sort of like the author is dead. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I love, I love the author. Yeah, no. It, when I said readerly, yeah, I think, I think it means like for me, there's something richer and more personal about being able to take and make of this figure what what is important or what I need. Maybe is is the best way mm. to put it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really need in 2019, um, or I don't, I don't, fi- I don't get a lot out of. Uh, you know, a Taylor Swift or whoever, like being like, I'm your ally. Like that doesn't mean much to me or do do much in my life. But finding these figures who maybe didn't say that, but who provided, you know, uh, life models or just um, comfort uh, or, or entertainment um, in ways that felt relevant to me as a gay man is more meaningful. Um, so, and I, and I, I grant that this is like an old fashioned like way of relating. Like I, I think it, I think it is, but um, it, it has meant a lot to me. And this speaks to like uh, something that I think about a lot, but never in as much depth as I thought about it while preparing for this episode, which is the difference between who gay men choose as their icons and who lesbians choose as their icons. So I think gay men often choose straight women as their icons. And I'm kind of like, why don't lesbians choose straight men as as our icons? <laughs> and there are a lot of reasons for this. And I'd like to talk about them because I, I would like to shit on straight men a little bit. I think straight women give gay men the opportunity to explore expansive and multifaceted emotions in a way that society tells men they often can't do. You know, gay men can recognize and identify with the way straight women are sometimes marginalized for their sexuality, appearance. Um, and, you know, gay men can sort of inhabit a straight woman's love for men. Brandon, I feel like you've talked about this a lot in terms of your identification with a lot of these pop stars. Um, 
But, you know, lesbians generally try not to view and treat women the way that straight men do. So I'm not going to, like, put myself in the perspective of the way a straight man thinks about women. Women give gay men fashion icons. Straight men don't give women, queer women, fashion icons. I think there are some, there is a genre of man that sort of seems like a lesbian who's like a little soft in the face, a little in his feelings, like a Zac Efron or something who becomes a little bit of a lesbian icon, Justin Bieber. But like just another sort of contrast that I've noticed in D.C., there's a gay-owned beer garden that has a mural of Elizabeth Taylor on it. Meanwhile, the lesbian bar has these adorably earnest like black and white 8x10s of Martina Navratilova, Laverne Cox, like Ellen Page, yeah. Janelle Monet, um, like actual queer women. And then randomly like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> who, sure. <laughs> um, I wonder what you guys think about gay men's adoption of straight women versus lesbians' adoption of other queer women as icons. I mean, I think you you really just did like a great outline of the reasons like why we or a lot of the reasons why this has existed historically. Um, I I'm feeling a little bad about it now. Don't feel <laughs> like bad. I, Don't, well, no, I, I feel like this, those I are feel a lot of good reasons. Well, but it does it does feel I mean, what I kept thinking about when you were sort of giving those like sort of bullet points of why that that uh, phenomenon has existed, I think it it feels a lot like we're gay men use uh, these straight women for various reasons in various ways. Right. Um, And so I I think that I would like to hope that that isn't um, always exploitative, but I think it it has been I mean, especially around like the um, the sort of phenomenon of the uh, gay male worship of like the the tragic diva figure um, in a lot of a lot of those classical um, icons are in that category. Um, You know, it, it was there was a lot of like we love them as much for their successes as for their like when they fe- fell um, mm. and, and sort of and, and I think there's this uh, generous reading of that, which is like, you know, identifying with the tragedy of, of that we experienced as, as gay men, you know, being uh, marginalized and discriminated against. And so some 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 sort of connection between those two things. But I think also sometimes it could be mean and and uh, sexist. I mean, probably um, I think both things are going on at once. Um, and yeah, no, no, I, I'm I'm put in mind of like how how that could be a negative relationship, um, and the, and then maybe the earnest the earnest thing the the, the, photo, the eight by tens of like community leaders uh, leaves me feeling a little bit um, bored. But it also is not is not um, you know doesn't have that aspect to it at least. So, Christina, who did you bring? It's not so much who as what. (gasps) Well, maybe that's disrespectful to my icons. So my icons (laughs) are queer animals. (gasps) Um, Wonderful. So there's been a rash of homosexuality sweeping the (laughs) penguin community. I don't know if you guys are aware of that, but apparently I Googled this. I I knew that there were a couple of gay penguins in the Sydney Aquarium. Brandon, you should go say hey while you're there. It's Um, on my list. But when I Googled them, I realized there's basically gay penguins in every zoo or aquarium in the world. (laughs) In London, in New York, in Denmark, Toronto – Northern China. There's a gay penguin couple at the Munich Zoo that tried to raise a rock together because they're two men who can't lay an egg. 
In Dingle, Ireland, the majority of the penguin colony at the local aquarium is gay. Eight out of the 14 (laughs) penguins are in committed same-sex relationships. There's also, I remember people kind of getting obsessed, like having a a small moment of obsession with this genderqueer lion, like Mm -hmm. an assigned female at birth lion who grew a mane. Um, There's also bonobos who are largely pansexual and, you know, don't discriminate in terms of sex or gender with their sexual partners. I've written about these animals. I think, like, straight people enjoy looking at them. Straight people who support gay people enjoy, you know, thinking about gay animals. And for queer people, it's, it's, I think, uh, they can be icons in the sense that uh, if you're trying to say, like, oh, all of these homophobes are saying it's not natural and you've just invented queerness because of you know something weird about today's culture it's like a totally contemporary thing that humans have invented with their like um you know sexual over permissiveness well check out the penguins at the zoo you know (laughs) there's penguins all over the world who've never met each other who are having homosexual relations um but you know, I'm, I don't feel particularly invested in countering the that's not natural argument. I don't really care if being queer is natural or not. Um, what I like about them is that they're fucking cute. It's cute. <laughs> and I usually am against anthropomorphizing animal behavior because, you know, animals aren't human. And I know it's scientifically irresponsible to do that. But seeing myself in an animal in terms of like these two gay penguins who kidnapped an egg from a straight couple at their aquarium, I can project to your point, Brian, about being able to project what Mm -hmm. you want onto these sort of um, images of people. It's not so much about who they are and who they say they are, but what you want them to be and what you see in them. I derive inspiration from watching these queer animals um, queer the shit out of whatever zoo or aquarium they're in. And, and I yeah. think it's especially subversive because a lot of times in zoos and aquariums, they're trying to breed animals and, you know, force them to procreate. And these animals are saying, I'm going to get my sexual and romantic gratification from somebody who I'm not going to procreate with. Yeah, Christina, I like, I am thinking now, like, as you're saying that, that like the same mechanism um, that that I was, yeah, that I was sort of talking about being old fashioned is actually, I think, at play in what you're talking about with these animals. And also with like, random figures like the Babadook, which we like claimed as an icon, <gasps> right? Like, like a couple summers ago, like, I feel like those, like, projecting or sort of stealing these, uh, these animals or these figures as our icons is, is the same in some way, like, uh, impulse. Uh, and, may- and maybe as our as our real-life um, icons have gotten more explicit about their queer support, we're looking for that kind of satisfaction elsewhere. I think that's a wonderful place to end it. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. For our next segment, we're going to talk about one of the major vehicles queer people have for exploring and creating their own icons, drag. Here in Slate's DC studio with me to help us unpack the art and artifice of drag performance is DC drag king and producer Pretty Ricky. Welcome to Outward. Thank you for having me. I'm super, super excited to be here. We're so happy to have you. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Pretty Boy Drag, the DC drag troupe that you co-founded? So Pretty Boy Drag is a QPOC-centered drag king troupe here in Washington, DC, essentially meaning that we will uplift POC performers as a way of showcasing more POC talent in the area and in drag kinging in general. And I want to know about your drag persona, Pretty Ricky. Tell me about how you came up with Pretty Ricky, how long you've been performing as Pretty Ricky. So my very first performance, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was November of 2013. Wow. Um, But I often tell people that I came up with Pretty Ricky because I was a fan of the group. There was a early 2000s, mid 2000s group called Pretty Ricky. But I'd always wanted to, my muggle name is Erica, <laughs> and I'd always wanted to go by the name Ricky and never quite had the, the chutzpah to do it. And when I started drag, I was like, I'm going by Ricky. So uh, it was either Pretty Ricky or uh, if you are an American Dad fan, there was a character on there named Ricky Spanish. But I felt like that was a too appropriative, so <laughs> I went with Pretty Ricky instead. Does Pretty Ricky, as you perform Pretty Ricky, draw from the actual hip-hop R&B group in any way? Yes. In some instances. I, I would say I'm, I'm actually much more uh, inclined to do T-Pain songs. I, I love T-Pain. I have always loved T-Pain. He's, uh, I've seen him in concert. Um, I've met him. I, I just, oh, wow. I really, my wife got me tickets for a meet and greet uh, for our anniversary one year. And <laughs> I just like excuse the term, like garbage music. Like it doesn't mean anything. There's no point to it. There's no, you know, uh, it's not rooting for one side or the other. It's just we're going out to party and drink and flirt. And (laughs) that's kind of how Pretty Ricky's persona came to be. And what was that like for you? Was that, you know, something that was missing from your life? Absolutely. Um, And any drag performer will probably tell you that before performing in drag, you didn't know that you had something missing until you actually did it. Okay. I had always struggled with words like butch and, you know, especially in, you know, very religious black households, you know, as a female bodied person, you know, my mother bought me lots of purses and dresses and I wore 
different colored tights at various parts of my life. Mm -hmm. And I never quite felt comfortable, but I didn't know there was an alternative. And actually, before I started drag, I had met my now wife. I I met her. And um, I was still wearing, as she would say, like outdated, uh, like express sweaters (laughs) for women. (laughs) And it just it didn't look right on me. And. Yeah. I remember the look on her face the very first time I got on stage. And at this point, she was not interested in me, quote unquote, not interested <laughs> in me. And I remember the look on her face when I was wearing like men's clothing and I was presenting in a more masculine um, fashion. I felt more comfortable. I felt for the first time in my life, I really felt like sexy and wanted. And I don't know, it just it it a whole new me kind of came out of it after that very first performance. That's really cool. So this episode is about queer icons. And in a previous segment, we were talking about how it seems like gay men tend to make icons out of straight women very easily. And I've seen a lot of drag queens, as you mentioned, you know, impersonating Cher, doing Madonna, Whitney Houston. And I find that queer women and non-binary people don't really make icons out of straight men as often. And I wonder if drag kinging is an exception to that or if it's it just sort of serves as, you know, to support that? Because drag kinging is uh, most of the time a performative masculinity, making fun of masculinity mm. and to actually um, uphold somebody who presents that in real life would feel a little bit like like a contradiction, right? So I impersonate T-Pain at times when I perform his songs, and he's very much about the women and the alcohol and the money. I am not mm-hmm. like that in real life, and nor do I recommend anybody spend their their waking <laughs> hours concentrating on that. <laughs> but it's fun to emulate and it's fun to make fun of. Huh. Uh, and I think that's a little bit of the difference, right? So, like, you can look at Cher and point out very, like, the way that Cher has changed music for women in particular or, you know, Christina Aguilera or any, like, female pop star diva icon, right? But I feel like it's different when it comes to male singers and uh, and entertainers. There's a – I mean, we're all waiting in bated breath for our next favorite male icon to make a tumble, right? So, like, I feel like that's – the difference between drag queens mm. is that they are – emulating and upholding these these people that they're they're performing as whereas drag kings tend to be more like putting a magnifying glass on it like is this mm. masculinity is this toxic masculinity how do we take right. toxic masculinity and turn it on its head so now it's we're using it as a tool to empower ourselves and empower our audiences uh, and empower performers and make people question some of the things that they might find attractive right so Recently, we've always had a ban on R. Kelly songs, mm. which um, mm-hmm. now we are realizing that was probably one of the smartest moves we've made. <laughs> yeah. um, but we recently added Chris Brown to that list. And mm. I love Chris Brown songs. Don't get me wrong. You put a Chris Brown song on right now, I'm going to be dancing. But he's a problematic person. And there's no way that I would want to to uphold that or put uh, put it on a pedestal because he is such a problematic person. If that makes sense. Am I answering the question? Oh my god, yes, definitely. Yeah, no, that's so fascinating. I mean, it's almost like it sounds like in Kinging, there's more of an embedded like critique of in what's happening versus I think in Queening, a lot of times, yeah, it's just like either imitation or exaggeration, but there's not so much of a necessarily like a a critical point of view 
um, happening at the same time. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think so. I often get asked why drag queens have more of a uh, of a mainstream appeal than mm-hmm. drag kings. And in my opinion, it comes from this misogyny that we have deep down inside. There is something more entertaining about a male-bodied person putting on women's clothing, right, than mm-hmm. a female-bodied person putting on men's clothing. It's the exact same thing, right? Like, you know, we're, they're inversed. Mm-hmm. I often have to explain to people what a drag king is, which usually my answer is, do you know what a drag queen is? <laughs> I'll give you five minutes to try and figure that out. <laughs> right. Like, just do the math, do the math yourself. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, you have... Drag queens have RuPaul's Drag Race. Drag kings don't have anything like that right now. Mm. And RuPaul has made it very clear that she is not interested in drag kings, I think, for the exact same reason, right? What's so interesting about uh, – and I'm just going to use – and being flippant right now. So not everybody who does drag kinging identifies as a woman. Mm-hmm. But I think for a lot of people who don't know better, they're like, what's so interesting about a woman wearing men's pants? And – it makes our jobs as kings harder because we have to we have to do a little bit more to entertain an audience. Um, we have to grab them from a different perspective. And almost every time you step on stage, you're proving yourself to this audience that I am worth you coming and buying tickets to my show. I am worth the tips that you have in your pocket. I am worth you coming back again to watch me perform. So I think there through nobody's you know, no individual's fault. There is this 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 built-in kind of misogyny that's that mm-hmm. surrounds drag in general. So one thing that I've noticed at Pretty Boy drag shows, and I think this is somewhat the case in a, in a lot of drag king performances versus drag queen performances, but especially with Pretty Boy drag, is y'all are very sexy. <laughs> like I think the sexual attraction and the sexual energy is a really important part of your shows. Yeah. And I wonder how you think about, you know, sexuality, sexual attraction, and just like a sexual vibe in terms of creating these icons of subversive masculinity. So um, one, from a performer standpoint, it feels good to have an audience like look at you like that. It feels good to feel sexy and wanted in the moment. And that makes for more authentic performances, I think. You know, there it's one thing to pretend to to feel a certain way about the audience and another if you are actually feeling like, oh wow, they they're really vibing with me right now. I think for drag kings that is um not that drag queens are not sexy because they mm-hmm. absolutely are. We have just a, we just do a different type of performative um, sexuality, I guess. Which, interestingly enough, within the black community, specifically more in the South, there's something called like stud performance, which mm. is uh, stud or dom performance, which we sometimes borrow little elements from. We'll do lap dances at shows. Um, you know, we may do a show where we do a lot of stripping and a lot of like sexual, you know, dance moves. I think it's very important for us as a troupe, although we have a lot of like fun, goofy performers as well. But the the, the sexual part of it, I think, is is it emboldens the performers both as a performer and in, per- and, and in their personal lives, especially for people who are uh, still trying to figure out where they fit in the spectrum. Um, you have a lot of people that I, I know who have tried drag kinging because they want to figure out if they're um, 
if they're trans, they, they use it as kind of like a, mm-hmm. as a as a testing ground. Do I feel comfortable presenting myself publicly in this way? Does it feel authentic? Does it feel real to me? And when you incorporate that with a little bit of sexuality, I think it helps, right? Like, do you feel sexy like this? You know, and it's all body types. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to have just six-pack abs. You know, we have skinny performers. We have fat performers. We have performers that fall in between. And we are female-bodied, so some performers have really wide hips and do you feel sexy? Does does this does this embolden you as a person? Um, and then also for the audience to see this, to see different types of sexuality performed on stage. I think people discover different things about themselves. I performed in front of straight audiences before, and you d- every once in a while you I'm get cringing, yeah. imagining that. Every once in a while you get the uh, the 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 young straight girl in the front row who's got her <laughs> arms crossed because she doesn't want to see what you're doing, and then you do this one little move and you can see that look that ooh ooh that hit that a little something went off in my brain just now and now I'm trying in to your fi- brain, <laughs> in your brain quote unquote in your brain and now I'm just trying to figure out like how I feel about this and and I'm going to share this and my my wife will either be mad at me and I'll sleep on the couch tonight or she won't care. But when we first met, she uh, she had never been with a female body person before. And I'd like to think, not necessarily just because of the way that I performed in drag, but because of the confidence that I was able to build off of that. And mm-hmm. my performative sexuality kind of became me. And I felt more confident. I felt more confident approaching people and the way that I interacted with people. And she was attracted to that. And that was something that was always in me, but it wasn't until I started performing in drag that I was able to kind of dig it out from up underneath all these years of oppression and mm. religious, you know, finger wagging and guilt that's associated with that. And uh, finally found something that felt authentic to me and real and being able to walk around in the world like that. People look at you differently and people treat you differently. Um, and even if they don't treat you differently, you react to that differently, right? So, you know, if somebody is still not giving you the time of day, it goes from, oh, well, why won't, why don't they like me to, I don't care, right? You've built this confidence, this, this inner sexuality that's like, I can get whoever I want. And if you don't want me, I don't want you. So I'm moving on. And that has been a, a really, uh, great part about Pretty Boy Drag, watching people blossom as they perform and become more confident and become more in tune with themselves as a, as, as a person, as a performer, uh, as a sexual being. Um, it's exciting. All right. I think we've got to wrap up now, but where can our listeners who are now so excited to watch you and your performers perform? So uh, we are on, uh, we have a website, because it's 2019. If you don't have a website, you should question yourself. Uh, so it's prettyboydrag.com, and it's boy with an I. You can, if you're in Washington, D.C., uh, we have we have shows probably every six to eight weeks. We used to have them more frequently, but it was taking a toll on us, both physically and emotionally, <laughs> to do shows that often. Um, so we have Open King Night, which is our open mic night, uh, essentially for drag kings, if you want to give it a try, openkingnight.com. If you are curious and want to give it a try, uh, we'll walk you through the process and then throw you up on a stage and watch you perform to Ed Sheeran. Hopefully not. (laughs) Um, uh, Also, we have a show coming up in November in D.C. It's one of my favorite shows. It's one of our flagship shows called Sunday Service. It is 
our version of church, of black church specifically. If you've never been to a black church, which I had a Jewish friend show up to our last show, and she was like, I'd never been to Christian church, much less a black <laughs> Christian church. I love that right. that's her only experience with yes. church now. <laughs> I, in my opinion, it's fairly accurate, but uh, some <laughs> other people might disagree. But um, it's our church service. We have a choir. We have fans. We have tambourines. Um, we, but we do it all to secular music, and it's a way of us all like coming together and worshiping in our own way. So uh, mm-hmm. if you are looking for a show to go to, that's the one to go to. I'm really excited for that. Yes. Thank you so much, Pretty Ricky. This thank was you. Really fun. This was yeah, awesome. Thank you. thank you so much. All right. That's about it for this month. But before we go, it's time for our usual update to the gay agenda. Uh, in keeping with the icons theme, our recommendations will be media featuring one of our favorite queer icons in finest form. Brandon. Right. So I'm going to continue on my um, drag journey, as you mentioned at the live show, Brian. And so my gay agenda item is the final lip sync challenge from season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race mm. between Peppermint and Sasha Velour. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, the song that they uh, lip sync to is the Thunderpuss mix of Whitney Houston's It's Not Right, But It's Okay. It's not right. Drag classic, yes. Yes, yes. Um, and so, like, the original version of that song, uh, which is an R&B classic in its own right, came out in 1999, I believe. But also the version that has sort of gone down in queer history as an anthem is the Thunderpuss mix. Um, and so, like, it basically strips away everything except for Whitney's vocals, and you just sort of hear these towering, um, massive drums um, sort of supporting her her actual lyrics. Um, and that final lip sync challenge, I think, is a perfect way to just sort of show fealty to this kind of song and to our mm. Lordis and Savior Whitney. Um, <laughs> because you have Sasha sort of wearing this elegant, angular, uh, bone or sort of like calcified looking dress. Um, and she mimics this, the, the like beautifully overwrought scream at the part of the song when Whitney belts, you were making a fool of me. Um, and so it, it, it's just the, um, sort of most camp, over-the-top, uh, just exhilarating juxtaposition of diva and devotee, I think. Um, and so if you have not seen, if, even if you're not a fan of Drag Race, I, I recommend checking out um, that one, even that one lip sync challenge, because it'll, it'll change your life. Definitely iconic, for sure. Christina, what have you got? I am recommending... Kristen Stewart's Totino's Pizza Roll commercial. <laughs> it's not a real commercial. It's an SNL skit mm-hmm. or um, what would you call that? A sketch, I guess, a sketch. Not, not a skit. But um, so Kristen Stewart guest starred on Saturday Night Live. It was a seminal moment in queer culture for me. Uh, she is one of my favorite queer icons of the moment. Um, I think her very persona is iconic and exaggerated, although I'm not sure she intends it to be so exaggerated. Such an exaggerated performance of uh, the 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 archetype of queerness that she is. So it the sketch starts out. It seems like it's going to be. I, I'm pretty sure this is a sketch that they've done on SNL before, where it's like the wife putting Totino's pizza rolls in the oven while her husband and his friends are watching the big game. But there's a twist in this one where one of the guys brings over his sister, Sabine, who's Kristen Stewart in a leather jacket. And she uh, 
basically liberates this heretofore straight woman from her life with the, a husband who saw her as a pizza roll making machine, not a full desirable person. And, you know, it takes this confident, sultry, gay ass woman to like name and recognize and inquire after this woman's desires. Like, what do you want? What, sorts of, what pizza roll? What do pizza rolls make you feel? Um, and it's it's really like the ultimate Kristen Stewart performance. She leans into these qualities and mannerisms that have made her an icon. And I love it because it's the kind of thing that probably, you know, it's funny for straight people to watch. Anyone can understand the joke here and they can enjoy it. But it's a much more multifaceted and rich text for queer viewers, um, especially queer viewers who are so familiar with this archetype of soft butchness in, you know, sexy French dramas. You can find it on YouTube. Almost 8 million people have watched it. And I think 8 million more should, including all of our listeners. That is incredibly beautiful. Um, thank you. Uh, I, I am a fan of that of that sketch as well. What's your agenda item? So keeping up the theme of, uh, of sort of campiness, I'm going to recommend um, – well, so the icon that I'm that this is in reference to is Tammy Faye Baker, mm. who, um, if our listeners don't know, was a TV telev- like televangelist, singer, big evangelical figure, sort of from the 70s uh, through the 90s, for different reasons. Um, and so this the the thing I'm recommending actually is the documentary The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Um, which is a 2000 documentary narrated by RuPaul, um, also has sock puppets in it, um, and sort of is a you know documentary about Tammy Faye's life um, and fall from grace. Her um, husband was convicted of fraud in 89, and so that caused uh, her life to take a tumble. Um, but before that, she was sort of an a interesting figure because she was evangelical, but also like, really embraced or, or sort of didn't certainly didn't shun LGBT people and did a lot of AIDS outreach during the AIDS crisis. Also just has like crazy makeup, like kind of has like a drag queen aesthetic, um, always wore these like <laughs> fake eyelashes and nails and, and whatnot. Um, and so the, the movie is a great example of, I think, the way that queerness can look at the campiness of a figure and appreciate that, but also actually have genuine sympathy and respect for that person, um, especially like a tragic sort of tragic figure like this. And so it's, it's a fantastic documentary. Um, and I think it's streaming, you know, most places, uh, and I recommend watching it. It's personal to me because the, one of the weirdest things about, uh, the bakers was that they built a water park, um, next to my town in South Carolina, Oh, called wow. uh, Heritage USA, and I went there many yeah. times as a child. Insane. So uh, the eyes of Tammy Faye, icon forever. Um, and I think with that, we have reached the end of our episode. Please send us feedback, topic ideas, and advice questions to outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt and Melissa Kaplan, who provided both of whom provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the iconic senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds on August 21st. Bye, Brandon. Bye, Brian. See you, Christina. Bye, Brian. Bye.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.